Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it. Hello there, Honorverse fans. Welcome to our next exciting, quite boom-filled episode of Honorverse Today, the one and only Honor Harrington podcast you'll find out there. This is Raul Wybera, and I am joined, as always, by my good friends J.B. Harvey and Jim Arrowwood. How are the two of you tonight? Doing very well. Happy to be here. Oh, ditto that. Happier than I I can express. I've been down with a really nasty uh, flu respiratory virus the last few weeks, and it's nice to be able to get back on my feet a little, though you guys are still going to have to carry me a bit. Uh, But enough about me. Let's get into this show. You know, JP, I don't know if you... Remember early on when you first mentioned uh, the dime model, I told you we were going to reach a point where the D, the I, and the E would start taking a place at least as important as the military exercise of power. Yes, I do remember. We're here. Uh, Actually, not to a large degree in this book, but once we get into the next book, you're going to be up to your ears in dime. Nice. Yeah. Me being one of the 12 people on the planet that digs that stuff, that's... Uh... Oh, no, 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 no. I, I actually... Uh, first exposure to that for me was in the late... Ah, was it probably 80s? God, that was last millennium. Yeah. Uh, studied under Ron Glossop, uh, History of War... Oh, no, not History, The Problem of War and Peace. Uh, then did some independent studies with him on federalism. Was was a blast. Cool. Anyway, tonight we are talking about the Shadow of Saganami, which is the first of the Saganami Island series. And this is also the third, I, I don't want to call it, I, I don't want to call it third series or a sub-series, but it's the third arc of the Honor Harrington saga. I call uh, it a this, side quill later, so forgive mm-hmm. me if that's a bad description, but... Uh, I, I slip into it. I slip into it a lot. Uh, as you yeah. go, uh, if you think about where we were in the last Honor Harrington book, which I'll, I'll still refer to often as the main series just for convenience, this book, and then wait till we get into at all cost. It, it'll become real clear how things interweave, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves for that. In the meantime, I'm going to let Jim give us a summary while I rest my voice. All right, very well. The Star Kingdom of Manticore is once again at war with the Republic of Haven after a stunning sneak attack. The graduating class from Saganami Island, the Royal Manticore Navy's Academy, are going straight from the classroom to the blazing reality of all-out war. Except for the midshipmen assigned to the heavy cruiser HMS Hexapuma, that is, they're being assigned to the Talbot Cluster, an out-of-the-way backwater, far from the battlefront, 
The most they can look forward to is the capture of the occasional pirate cruiser and the boring duty of supporting the cluster's peaceful integration with the Star Kingdom. At the freely expressed will of 80% of the cluster's citizens, with a captain who may have seen too much of war, and a station commander who isn't precisely noted for his brilliant and insightful command style, it isn't exactly what the students of Honor Harrington, the Salamander, expected. But things aren't as simple or tranquil as they appear. The pirates they encounter aren't what they seem, and the peaceful integration they expect turns into something very different. A powerful alliance of corrupt Solarian League bureaucrats and ruthless interstellar corporations is determined to prevent the cluster's annexation by the Star Kingdom, by any means necessary. Pirates, terrorists, genetic slavers, smugglers, weapons, long-standing personnel hatreds, and a vicious alliance of corporate greed, bureaucratic arrogance, and a corrupt local star nation with a powerful fleet are all coming together. And only Hexapuma, her war-weary captain, and Honor Harrington's students stand in their path. They have only one thing to support and guide them, the tradition of Saganami, the tradition that sometimes a queen's officer's duty is to face impossible odds and die fighting. Well, there it is. All right. I'll roll into some special notes or amplifying notes for the the book if you guys want. Please do. All right. Uh, Kind of as we mentioned, this is the kickoff of another what I'll call a side quill storyline, with The Shadow of Saganami being the first of four novels in this Saganami Island series. So far. Yes, so far. Authored by David Weber, of course, Ban first published this one in October of 2004, and it came in in its original form at 755 pages. The events in the novel take place during the Manticore Haven State of War in the 2020-2021 PD timeframe. Erewhon has broken its alliance with Manticore. The events here follow what we read about in service of the sword in War of Honor and in Crown of Slaves, which would, those events you could place in a, around the, uh, the um, in my notes I wrote 1920, I think 2020, uh, or I wrote the first part of the notes badly, but these are in the same, basically the same time period, and the readers are going to see references in here that apply, you're going to see direct ties back, which Raul, you were sort of hinting that, about that tie. But it's only a year or two difference. At the beginning of the novel, Honor is giving some final words to graduates at the, or the graduating class at the academy, and then she's heading out to begin her command of Eighth Fleet. And then uh, kind of a special side note, and I called one of these out on a previous episode, David dedicates this novel to science fiction and fantasy author Anne McCaffrey. Yeah, She... Yeah, she, uh, big big gun. As I recall, the first lady to win a Hugo, and um, there's another another award. I'm I'm drawing a blank, but she, uh, just a powerhouse Nebula. in the science fiction and fantasy realm. Born in 1926, 
she passed away in 2011. This book was again published in 2004. So David acknowledged her role as a significant writing influence on him, fortunately, before uh, she passed away, or fortunately, when she could still hear and appreciate the compliment. But Anne McCaffrey. I love her writing. She is one of my all-time favorite authors. Yeah, that's my wife. My wife is a huge fan of hers as well. Every time I've hit this book and see that dedication, it's like I, I, I haven't done it yet because we're having to process through these stories and I can't afford the break. Yeah, but this is the first time I've hit that de- dedication and not actually gone back and reread the Dragon Riders Return. I think that other award you were reaching for, JP, was a Nebula. Ne- I thought. Yes. It, yeah, I think it was. She's won a Nebula. I thought. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That. That sounds absolutely right. I was just and the time frame is 1920 post diaspora. 1920, yeah. So I just, I just uh, type 2020, mm-hmm. 2021, 20, the 2020s. Because you got our time frame and her time frame conflated. Yeah, I do it all the time. That's where we the Roaring Twenties. Yeah. So <laughs> those those references, uh, those three references that track directly into this story. Um, and I said, this story is a couple of years after those service of the sword, war of honor and crown of slaves. And anyone who hasn't read Anne McCaffrey, you owe it to yourself to read at the very least, the dragon riders of Pern and the ship that sang. There you have it. Homework. In addition to the homework homework for keeping up with us on these, these books. (laughs) So Jim, why don't you kick us off with some overall impressions? Okay. I will. Uh, another very long book, but an outstanding story. This was a jam-packed book that could have actually been two books. Uh, the number of characters was dizzying. I counted 139 in all thanks to the list included at the end of the book. (laughs) I pretty much, (laughs) I, I pretty much have given up on trying to keep them all straight and just focus on the main ones. Uh, There were a lot of political maneuvers taking place, backstabbing, murderous mayhem, redemption, and a couple of great battles to sink one's teeth in. Um, There was no wasted space in this book. You know, Jim, uh, the the massive plethora of characters is in these is becomes a trademark in these books. And you're, you're going to see some people grump, get grumpy about it, but it, it's reality. It, it's a real ensemble cast. I'm grumpy by nature anyway, so that's okay. <laughs> so just, I'm going to kick it back just, to JP for his okay. overall impressions. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I, I kind of took the position you did, focused on the main, the, I'll say main characters, the ones that stood out to me, but I, I thought at the end... If the author felt he needed to put a list of the characters in the back of the book, there's a lot. There's a lot because he's oh. already showed us he can he can weave a lot of characters in, and they're not just red shirts. And right speaking there. of characters, uh, speaking of character lists, do practice on your Polish, Czech, and Russian pronunciations. I'll try to get that done. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I agree. Uh, about the size of this thing, it was it was large, and I because there was no wasted space, it act it actually seemed like even more story than the number of pages that 
we went through. Um, I saw it as a two-part story. I think that's interesting, Jim, that you said it could have been two two novels. Two-part story with the first part featuring a significant amount of political and diplomatic maneuvering revolving around, but maybe not exclusively around, genetic slavery and the distant end of the recently discovered wormhole terminus in the Talbot cluster, um, which we sort of got as a you know, as little nibbles in some of the earlier stories. And now th- that that distant end is becoming an important feature. And this story is kind of anchored to it in a way. Um, Manicor offers the options and benefits of annexation for that system uh, or that cluster, obviously bolstering their security and economic t- interests. So here's some more of the dime stuff, right? With options that include full annexation, partial annexation of only some of the star systems, or the option for all of the members of the cluster to just reject the offer. But that offer is on the table, and obviously there's benefits to Manticore as well. So of of course, nothing goes easily with the number of players. I don't mean the number of characters, but that too, yes. But the number of players and competing interests that are involved... The second storyline directly ties to this, but it gets a little more tactical and, you know, you can air quote that as we see the more localized struggles that track back to that Manticoran Manticoran offer. Um, So Manticore saying, we'll welcome you into our family. Here's the conditions. And now we're, and then we get to watch kind of the local, but so what's happening with that? And that's where all the backstabbing and stuff that Jim mentioned starts coming in. So overall, very long, very good novel, not light reading. It's another of David Weber's novels that will entertain for sure, but it's, uh, it's going to add to your education. There's stuff in here that you can apply to the real world. Raul, uh, how about you? Overall impressions. This novel, like the last one is a very long read, but it's for very different and in my personal opinion much better reasons okay there while there's plenty of action there's also a whole lot of setup for the future hello there murray and lots and lots and lots of political theory and all the dime to keep jp happy for a long long time uh there are more historical and philosophical references in this book than we could possibly hope to even cover in one podcast. And we're going to see a lot of that in, especially some of these Saginami Island books. In other words, this is as much of a thinking man's book as it is a military action story. And you can almost, this could almost be classroom reading for a political theory book or for a political theory class. Uh, The novel, as you two have both said, it's really two separate stories, Cornadia and the Montana Rembrandt stories, bookended by the events on Monica and all the Constitutional Convention stuff and split. You could argue, as you two have mentioned, that this book could have been split into two novels, but I think that would have defeated one of the purposes of the story. And that's that comparison and contrast between the American resistance protest movements that we see in Montana and with the uh, Rembrandt Trade Union, and those we saw, we've seen historically in Europe, especially Eastern Europe. 
You know, the former is based on the classic Americana with a lone cowboy standing against the Yankee industrialist. Then you get to the Cornadia where you've got uh, the violent class warfare incited by oligarchical self-interests. And frankly, it's got some rather disturbing resemblances to parts of the world today, two decades after these, this book was even written. The other role of this book is establishing the final of the three theaters where the second half of this epic is going to occur. So now we have the main Manticore Havenite Solarian League focused on honor. We've got the Mayan sector with Torch, Erohan, Maya, the Kasha, Zilwiki Alliance of Crown of Slaves. And now we've got the Talbot cluster with OFS and the Solarian League. And we have a common thread across all three of these now, which is Mesa. Now, there's a couple of pieces still to be moved about the board, but the game's largely set up now. In particular, there's one last major character that has to be put in that character's place for the story. This is a long book, and it's got a long read because you're going to want to digest everything it's got to offer. It doesn't quite displace Ashes as my favorite, but it is absolutely high amongst my favorite in the series. And I could, if someone said this was their favorite book, I would understand it easily. Character list. Oh, Lord. There is a lot. There are a lot of characters in this book. I counted 13 pages of the appendix of just character lists, typically one or two lines for each. Uh, There is going to be a lot of characters in this arc in particular. I am absolutely certain I am going to miss someone's favorite character or I'm going to miss a place or organization that someone thinks is important. I'm going to do this mostly to highlight the characters that I know are going to be important and that we're going to see again, or that are going to have a more, what's the word I'm looking for, a significant role in the story going on. So I'm going to start out with the obvious. That's going to be Helen Zewicki, Anton's uh, older daughter. Yep. She's over here on the Saganami Island series while Barry is queen over in Crown of Slaves. And I am going to absolutely welcome anyone to add in comments or thoughts on any of the characters. Abigail Hearns is now the assistant tack officer and she's the middies octo. She's still around with Mateo in tow and I am glad we got to see her back and we'll definitely be seeing more of her going forward. Uh, Paolo Rangenhild uh, Akawa, her fellow middies, we'll see most of them again. Obviously not all. And then we get the captain, Ivers Terakov, the captain of the Hexapuma, and he's definitely one of the rising stars of the Royal Manticoran Navy. We're far from done with him as well, and we're going to see some interesting combos of some of our newer characters at his level coming together going forward. Ginger Lewis is back. That was another character I really loved. And she's running engineering now. She's a Mustang, but she could have easily been on a tactical captain's track if she had wanted to. But we're going to be seeing a lot more of her. Naomi Kaplan and Anston Fitzgerald, part of uh, Tarakov's command team, to more people will be seen more again. We get a return of someone we haven't seen since book one, Baroness Medusa. 
I love that character. She's back and she's even more competent and skillful than she was then. And obviously, yeah. as we get through the story, you, you're going to see she's going to continue to have a major role uh, going forward. Paired with uh, paired with Baroness Medusa is Augustus Kamalo, who is the fleet admiral. I really like that guy. I, I he he was a fun character. Most importantly, because the amount of growth he had, a mature, established admiral, have who was basically an administrator, had to learn and rose to the occasion. And you don't see a lot of that in a lot of science fiction. So that that kind of growth was really pleasant to see. Lorcan Veraccio was the OFS commander in the Monica sector. He's a minor but major character. I'm going to leave these, I'm going to pair these two together for the moment. Isabella Bartisano and Aldona Anisimovna. Apparently, they're manpower operatives who've had some run-ins with Manti plans in the past. And I know I, I, I know I'm not saying nearly as much as should be said about these two, <laughs> but, but folks, you just gotta wait. And another character that I'm not going to say much about at this point also is Damien Harahap. Uh he's a mid-level operative for the Office of Frontier Security. And all I'll say is keep an eye on him. We're going to he, he's going to be one of the more central characters in uh the story. In in uh, the cluster, I, I'm not even going to try to name everyone. I'm going to keep. I'm going to get the most important ones. Agnes Norbert, who's the wingnut antifa type from Split. She's the one, basically, a terrorist that has no problem blowing up people, including school kids. Steve Westman is another rebel, but he's from Montana, and you know he's not actually a bad guy. The big one of the differences between the two is Norbert is absolutely willing to sign on with Firebrand's, uh, who's Damien's code name, plans with, uh, with with no concern whatsoever. Yeah, he's getting he's getting messed with. He's getting you get, manipulated. You get to watch the light come on with him, which is kind of yep. cool. I yep. really liked Steve Westman and yeah. would and really would like to see more of him. I, uh, you know, yeah, he was a terrorist. He was still, but, but at the same time, I don't, he, he, from, from what he was doing, he, he was not, he was not targeting civilian targets. Well, yeah, but that, you know, whether that's you're one of the big up. differences between a terrorist and a revolutionary. Well, he, I don't he know. He was targeting, he was targeting what could be considered legitimate military targets. I mean, if anybody had been left behind, they'd have been killed. But at the same time, the guy, at least, he was genuine in what he was trying to do. Yep. Uh, even though he was being manipulated badly. So, yeah, I, I like Steve Westman. I'd like to see him come back on the other side. Norbert? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah he, I, thought, I thought Westman was very e I bounced back and forth between seeing his point of view and being really mad with him. Yeah. For, yep. For what he was doing. But I was but, mad at him because I could see his point of view. Yeah. And Does I wasn't sure of his true motives, but all that stuff sorts itself out. And it's a neat ride to see how that happens. 
Yeah, and it, obviously it, we're all saying well we like the guy, so it, it apparently resolves pretty well for if someone's missed that, I guess, right? Well, but what did you really think about him in the end? Well, we want to see him more of him. It's not because he's a horrible dude. It's because he, we actually like him. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, it took a bit, and it took a bit because of the way his story unfolds, and it was worth it. It was worth the wait. And it was a it was a good it was a good redemption story. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And uh, contrasting with the, both of those, they've each they, they've each got a contrasting person. Uh, Alexander Tonkovic, uh, who is the president of, uh, Cornadia and more or less, uh, Norbert's sworn enemy. Uh, the problem is she's no, she's not a nice person either. Yeah. Frankly, a different Norbert's kind got of, cause. of bad in a way. Yeah. It, it's just a different kind of bad. It's an oligarchy. Yeah. And she's the head of that off the record. Uh, contrasting to her, we have Bernardus Van Dort, who is the founder and leader, even if he doesn't own up to the role officially, of the Rembrandt Trade Union. And I'm going to mention both of them, Montana and Rembrandt, a little bit later. Two other characters that just a lot of exposition happens through, Ivernau and Lababibi. Uh, we're going to see a little bit more of them going forward in uh, some of the future books. Uh, Roberto Tyler, who's the president of Monica and basically a stooge, a sock puppet for both OFS and Mesa. Yeah, like that sock. And puppet. there's a couple of other characters that are yet to be placed on the chessboard. Uh, one very important one in the next book and uh, another one that I'm really looking forward to a little bit later. We do have a pretty hefty list of places, things, and organizations as well. I'm, I'm going to start out with, and I thought it was mentioned by someone a little earlier, piracy being an issue. And that, keep in mind, is something that's got a long history in Manticore, covers a whole lot of what goes on and some of the whys here. Old days were much more of a fleet organization to them as well, we find out, which we're going to see when we get to the Manticore Ascendant uh, series. But more in modern times, HMS Hexapuma, which is one of the new Saganami C-class. This is a heavy cruiser that carries capital missiles and has the bow walls that uh, and stern walls that uh, the uh, LAX have. The and Verge, it's also my understanding. I'm sorry. It's also my. Un- <laughs> it's also my understanding that it is friggin' huge. Yeah. Yes, it did. It, it. I didn't know if you were going to mention. Uh, it is bigger than any heavy cruiser should be. And the reason it's even considered a Saganami-class ship is political manipulation so they can even build the dang things. The Verge is the shell of systems just outside of the borders of the Salarian Leagues. That includes things like the Talbot Cluster, Monica. You go on the other side of the League, you got Congo. And we'll be we'll be hearing a lot of references to that. Uh, the Talbot Cluster is the recent the collection of stars that is being annexed by the Star Kingdom, and really they're sort of the fourth priority uh, at, with everything else that's going on. But then, you know, after after their own internal problems, uh, Haven, the the stuff going on in on Congo and on the other side, 
But then why is there a whole series dedicated to it? <laughs> we'll see. I will say the tablet cluster, it's an interesting combination of Old West frontier, American, I, I believe was the word I used before, third world nations, especially uh, Eastern European, and small but well-off modern systems. A lot of these are either under the thumb or they're trying to avoid being under the thumb of the Office of Frontier Security. Now, we saw one rare facet of the OFS in the last book. They, weren't, they didn't seem like such bad guys. And no, they're not. Here we see the more typical face on the body. And the anticipated going downhill from here, where, where they're concerned, that should be obvious by the end of the book. Monica. Yeah. Well, there's their, a, their, what I took as their marketing face. You know, here's the, here's the glossy brochure of what your <laughs> OFS does for you. And then there's what's behind that. And we're getting a good look at what's behind that. It's not the glossy We're getting brochure. a real good look at what's behind it. Yes. Uh, the folks we saw in uh, Crown of Slaves, what we saw is what we get. Uh, and, it, you know, they, they mentioned that they're obviously, because it was part of the story, they are plotting or planning something. We don't know what yet, but there's, there's a lot of what you see is what you get with uh, the principles involved there. Monica, independent star system, like I said, that's when, when I mentioned uh, Tyler, sock puppet for the OFS and Mesa, uh, split being the home of the Constitutional Convention, the planet New. Tuscany, which was Ivanov's planet, is right now we'll just leave it as a system in the Talbot cluster that bears watching. Cornati, obviously a key place where half the story, half the novel takes place with the more violent terrorist goings on. And then we have Montana, which in a big way seem, brings to mind Old West. In fact, they intentionally, uh, built the planet around it, uh, Old West Americana, cattlemen, and hey, it's a classic Western, so who are the cowboys always having to deal with? Uh, Rembrandt, the old Yankee industrialists. So we, we, we've almost got a traditional Western sitting right there. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say sheep herders. <laughs> uh, finally... I'm going to bring up Manpower Incorporated slash Mesa. I am not going to do anything more except ask Jim and JP's thoughts here. And I'm also going to say just wait till at all costs. <laughs> hmm. Okay. You, you, want, th you, want you want comments? What You want our thoughts? Sure. On, on this? I think, I think that we're seeing validation that they're everything that we thought they were. Very dirty. And more. Yep. They're playing on a different, well, I was going to say they're playing on a different field now, but I'm not sure that's quite accurate. We're just watching them do what I think we could have suspected they would have been doing, but now we're seeing it happen in terms of their yep. you, political um, meanderings about places that we just haven't given, you know, Talbot, everything on that end of the, of the new junction was didn't exist for us, right, as readers until just recently. Mm -hmm. And now we're getting getting some details about it, good and bad, and oh, look who's there. <laughs> well, it's, it's actually not very far from uh, Mesa's home system, the Mesa system yeah. itself. So, 
it just to me it was reason, it was a lot of confirmation not want manticore close no of course they don't and they wouldn't want haven close either um you know that one area that one nexus between haven and manticore is that they are both against at least policy wise they are both against the slave trade and here we got these these guys but certainly yep. with manticore park on the point, other side least. yeah so uh, I didn't learn anything new about them. It just confirmed for me that they're, one, they are what they appear to be, and two, they got their fingers everywhere. Yep. They, they confirmed a lot of things you've been commenting on for several books now, in fact. It's little stinkers. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jim, tell us about the story. Jim, yeah. All right. So, the HMS Hexapuma is headed out for a special mission to the Talbot Cluster under the command of Captain Avars Terikov. Terikov is a war veteran and former prisoner of war who has been recently cleared to return to the service. Along with him are Commander Ginger Lewis and Chief Petty Officer Aubrey Wanderman and several midshipmen right out of the Naval Academy on Saganami Island. The midshipmen are aboard for their snotty cruise, they include Helen Zawicki, uh, Ragnild uh, Ragnild Pavletic, and Aikawa Kagiyama, and Paulo D'Arezzo. Uh, each snotty is dealing with issues. So we've got a one way to we've put got it. A sh- we've got a ship full of what looks like mis- misfits. <laughs> okay. This isn't this isn't about that part of the story, but it I think. Raul, you might have mentioned something about this before, way way back at the beginning. It, I have to believe that these, maybe not all these names, but these names are names pulled from uh, the real world. They're from fans, supporters, things like that, right? The, either that or David is at least are. one of the most creative name generating people. <laughs> like these are these are co- cool and sometimes hard. These are cool names because there is diverse as as humanity right it's neat and i don't mean like oh this looks like this ethnicity or that looks like this nationality i mean these maybe we got to ask him the next time we get a chance to talk actually that you make these up this is one of the questions that i have for him the next time we have him on for an interview is where does he get the names yeah because it i love what he does with all these polish uh, dictionary yeah okay moving on While a state of war exists, it is somewhat surprising that Hexapuma is assigned to the cluster. The ship is one of the most modern and powerful cruisers. The cluster itself is a group of star systems that have overwhelmingly voted to become part of the new star empire of Manticore. But Manticore has no other choice than to send a small and insufficient force to guard the area as a constitutional convention takes place to define the terms of the cluster's annexation. Yep. Not everybody is very happy about this, but uh, if I recall, eighty percent of the population voted for it. Yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't a close vote, which of no. course is going to be exploited by the other side. Which is mm-hmm. where we get a lot of our different ex. We we get to see a lot of different. Uh, aspects of yeah. these small nations exercising national powers mm-hmm. you know the pros and cons of the size of the force that's there in 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 this case in the form of a ship but it's a big one you know there's 
there's that's an art, right? If you put a big force there, which could reassure the the eighty percent or whatever it was that the strength of the of the Star Kingdom now is there to defend and protect them, but it could also appear to be an intimidation of the other twenty percent, and more importantly, yeah. of the Solari- to the Solarian League. So whether it was a few little ships, one big Mongo ship or whatever, whether it was circumstantially driven or a deliberate decision, what you get really is a, in the end, a small, I mean, it's a big ship, but it's a small capability that could also be spun, right? Look, look at how much Manticore cares about you. Apparently not very much because all they sent was one ship. But, Um, oh no, they sent more than just one, but what they did send was their best. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm simplifying by mm-hmm. boiling it down to this, to this, you know, this, uh, star destroyer. Right. But, yep. um, I'm mixing my sci-fi here. I know but, <laughs> but, uh, that was a whole nother, be nice that was a whole nother track. That's right. Um, a whole nother track, a whole nother, um, line of education, whatever you want to call it, that, uh, Weber could have gone down. He couldn't. I mean, there's only so so much room. There's only so much story you can jam into 800 pages. But there's just so much here about to think about and ponder as you watch the events unfold inside of this part of the honorverse. It's cool stuff. Yep, and you're right, JP. It, it is definitely a bit of the art of using a not using force, but using a military force as a diplomatic message it's like okay we can't send a lot but we can definitely send our very best yeah and is and is it diplomacy courtesy of the military is it gunboat diplomacy (laughs) what and and we get to watch the the players in this story spin things along those kinds of lines without as i recall without necessarily pointing at any particular specialness or lack of specialness of the military presence that's there you're watching all the all these other all these other folks with all their interests maneuver the story to benefit their own interests. And you can argue Manticore is doing that as well. You mean where it gets sticky is when people say they're lying to you, they're misrepresenting what happened, they manipulated this or that. And then there's the real drama in the story is how do you get to the bottom? How do you find out what's really true? But uh, enough of that. (laughs) More of that later, I suspect. All right, continuing on. Powerful entities inside the Solarian League, several corporations, and the slaver world of Mesa don't want to see the annexation take place because of the proximity of their interests. They support groups in the cluster who are violently opposed to the annexation. The goal is to launch and maintain a terrorist campaign against Manticore, which gives the League an excuse to intervene and expel the Star Kingdom. Also stalling the annexation are the ruling oligarchs of many of the cluster systems who are afraid they will lose their power, wealth, and influence once they are absorbed into the Star Empire. There is also distrust because the annexation is being sponsored by the Rembrandt Trade Union, a powerful system merchant cartel with a reputation of strong arming and abuse. Comments? Yeah. Um, 
one character that I should have mentioned that I didn't with, with regard to the Rembrandt trade union, uh, Van Dort was, was definitely not, not, you know, his, his hands weren't entirely clean where his, where the trade union was concerned, but he actually had a noble goal there. A lot of their bloodthirsty, a lot of the bloodthirstiness that Westmen had issues with came out of Ineka Vandriger, who was the chairwoman that, uh, that uh, Van Dort uh, came in and basically booted because he got fed up with her methods and it was really in danger of compromising the annexation, in fact, because his, re- his, his real goal was to protect Rembrandt in particular and the cluster in general from being sucked up by uh, the Salarian OFS. That, as we'll see, more or less equates to serfdom. Uh, for several centuries, and he he was trying to avoid that. And he with Manticore with the new junction, he actually had a little more benign way of getting that assurance, and that was where he was determined to go. So I I, I can understand in the in the same way I can understand Westman, I can understand Van Dort as well. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So Hexapuma is to show the flag as they patrol the cluster's many systems and assist individual planetary governments to demonstrate Manticore's goodwill. In the meantime, anti-annexation groups carry out terrorist operations on two of the cluster's planets, Cornati and Montana. The terrorists are very different in nature. While Stephen Westman of Montana manages to bomb several government facilities without causing a single human casualty, Agnes Norbrandt leads a group that carries out ruthless bomb attacks in the center of Cornati's capital, thus slaughtering hundreds of innocent civilians, including children. Both groups get their supplies from a covert agent of the Solarian League's Office of Frontier Security. This agent known as Firebrand, is on a mission to destabilize the region so the OFS can occupy the cluster and stall the Constitutional Convention. The annexation becomes in danger of failing because the Manticorn government cannot become tied up with problems in the region while being in a shooting war with Haven. Yep, that that's the contrast between... You know, keep, keep in mind... Our American revolutionaries, they, they did much the same sort of things that Stephen Westman did. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if you want to give it, give an honest look at it. it so th- there's definitely a comparison and contrast between American style, American concept of res- revolutionary activity and what we, some of the things that we see in Eastern Europe, especially Eastern European socialists, it's. I don't believe it's an accident in that in the kind of com- historical comparisons that we see, or you see, that we see back there. In the same way that we get some mm-hmm. contrasts in the earlier part of the series with uh, aspects of the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. All right. Initially, Hexapuma is removed from the strife in the cluster and assigned to perform pirate patrol. When they stumble into two pirate cruisers. Terakoff proves his worth as a warrior to his own crew by commanding the defeat of the pirates and the capture of survivors who are former members of the defunct People's Republic of Haven. Mm-hmm. So 
they're still several out there. members of uh, they're they're out there and they've resorted to their own unique way of dealing with the war. <laughs> yeah, piracy, well, mercenary. We're going to see more of these fellows. Not these yeah, specific apart fellows, from, but apart from their government. Yeah. So, JP, they're going to take their training and they're going to benefit from it okay. rather than fold into what appears to be what grows out of the defunct People's Republic of Haven. It seems yeah. like they're just like, nope, not going to play. But I will yeah. take this ship. <laughs> and uh, let's, yeah. let's go earn some money. And off they go. Well, stinkers also, um, you know, at this point, maybe, maybe that, maybe more than that. But they are certainly out there being pirates. Mm-hmm. All right. In the meantime, Helen Zawicki is confronted by her fellow snotty Paulo Diarezo because of her attitudes towards him. She explains that she doesn't like the way he has been enhanced with Biosculpt. He tells her that he was born with his perfect features and is a former genetic sex slave bred by Mesa. He further tells her his family was freed by a manticorn captain whose name he took and who inspired him to join the Navy. So we get a little bit of a kind of a redemption story there a little bit too. Yeah. And that cool, is, cool part of the story, I en- his story. Yeah, is, I enjoyed is cool. watching the relationship develop. Yeah. Yes. And, ad- and attitudes change. It's, it's always nice to see a character change in the middle of a story. All right. Evidence piles up showing that the terrorists are pawns of foreign interests. The terrorist operations are actually a first step of a larger plan in the cluster. Hexapuma discovers a Mason freighter delivering weapons to Westerman. Tarakov sends in a pinnace with a boarding party to inspect the Marianne, the ship delivering the weapons. One of the privateers panics and destroys the pinnace, killing 18 of Hexapuma's clue, including midshipwoman Pavletic. Hexapuma decimates the Marianne with a counterattack and takes prisoners of the surviving crew. They throw themselves on the mercy of Tarakov, and the prisoners tell him about the OFS plan to occupy the cluster. This was a, a tear-jerking scene. Yeah. Oh, that, it, that hurt. Yeah, it, it sure did. And, but, you know, it's not a big party. It is a war. Mm-hmm. So. And the youngsters are getting the first real look at what that means. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, this was, of course, the vehicle to uh, reveal to Manticore what was really going on. Right. All right. After dealing with the terrorist groups with force on Cornati and with reason on Montana, Tarakoff assembles a squadron with other Manticore ships in a mission to prevent the next step of the OFS plan. They have sent a fleet of powerful ex-Solarian battlecruisers that have been transferred to Monica to be used against Manticore. Exapuma drops into the system and Tarakov demands a surrender of the fleet until Manticore can validate their authenticity and that they're sovereign to Monica and not to the OFS. Playing for time, the Monacan Navy lures the Manticorans into weapons range. In the following battle of Monica, half of Tarakov's squadron is destroyed while the Manticoran Navy is nearly wiped out. 
Tarakov buys time by threatening to nuke the remaining Monacan military until Rear Admiral Augustus Kumalo arrives to provide backup. That so, was actually a pretty significant uh, battle for yeah. more reasons than you realize. Uh, these were modern Solarian battle cruisers. My my impression is that technology is second only to Manticore. Uh, don't tell that to any Solarian. They'll think you're crazy. Well, uh, this is also the first defeat that the Solarian Navy is at, that Solarian ships have ever had. Yeah. Ah. Uh, I I viewed this whole this whole thing and my mind is like when you turn the light on and all of a sudden you see all the roaches are there and then they scamper. <laughs> but yep. these were these were roaches with big guns. <laughs> like the the now the light is on, everyone sees what's happening, all the evidence we saw piling up. Oops, now you got this. So Terakov uncovers the whole thing and it and it costs him dearly, but he's that's what he's there for, not not to yeah. die necessarily. And he right took now. a lot of risk, not just military risks to yeah. do that too. Yeah. Yeah. He he did what he had to do, but he also did it in a way to protect in a way that would protect the Star Kingdom or I guess right. Star Empire now if he was wrong. If it doesn't turn out to be what it appeared to be, right. He can he can be the fall guy. Mm-hmm. And he set it up, which is pretty cool. He set it up knowing that he's protecting his queen. Yeah. And that's one of the things I liked so much about uh, Kumalo and his growth. Ba- basically, I mean, he, he didn't like Tarakov a lot. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 there, was, there was some political, what's the word I'm looking for, friction between them. And when he saw what Tarakov was doing, uh, <laughs> he put together what he, as much as he could, including uh, Super Dreadnought, and... Basically, his statement was, I'm endorsing it. You're not going down alone. Yep. Hey, you don't have to be buddies to be on the same team. Nope. And he, he did it. By the way, Tarakov, I thought, when, as we started learning more about, when we started learning about him, I didn't know what to make of that guy. And I thought he might just be <laughs> like a stuffed shirt. And then, but then you find out he's a war hero and you're like, okay, that, that's okay. You know, I'm not sure I know what this guy is about. And, a war hero. It gets better PTSD. and better, and then you get to this, and you go, "This guy is this guy is an amazing officer." So I, I loved my own little journey there as I watch a person that I'm not sure I really trusted or had a lot of respect for, but I put the well, he he is in command of a queen ship, and it's not just any queen ship. But I really don't know what to think of this guy, and he just turns into everything you hope he would be, and you know. One of the th- one of the things along this line here, in the last book, we had another captain like that over with Overstegen. Yeah, and now we got. So it's not that Honor is such an exception; she's just the best of an exceptional navy. Yeah, yep, and and kudos to David Weber because he is. These aren't these aren't. Uh, stamped out admirals, right? These are all very, very different characters with real depth in their own stories. It's awesome, and we're seeing the we, we we've, we're seeing the same thing in their subordinates. Too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're not done. We're we're a long way from done with uh, with, with uh, the, the officer corps in yeah. in this book. 
Uh, we're we're going to see their growth. We're we're going to see more of Ginger. We're going to see more of uh, definitely more of uh, Abigail. Nah, definitely more of Abigail and Helen. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're nowhere near done with them. All right. Uh, All right. I'll finish this up with the last point. With the annexation of the cluster well underway, Terakoff and Hexapuma return to the Manticore system and are welcomed as heroes by the home fleet and the queen. Terakoff is compared to Dame Honor Harrington and Edward Saganami as a great commander. And so the title of the book. Yes. Yep. So, J.P. Yeah, that that uh, that homecoming, by the way, was was a tearjerker as well. Not yeah, yeah there, there, there are several parts of this book that brought a tear to the eye for good for for very different but all good reasons. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, were... sorry, Jim. I cut you off. Oh no, that's all right. Uh, from what what I thought you where I thought you were going, JP, is not only because there were some sad things, but it was also a triumphant moment. Yeah, it was that kind of tear jerker the yes the honor little h the majesty the appreciation the thanks and all it was like wow it was neat yep and well deserved all right jp why don't you continue on with the uh, themes okay well we talked about dime so there's that and there's a lot of it <laughs> there is a theme in here that's not super highlighted, but it runs through a huge amount of the book about what today would be called the doctrine of preemption. Ooh. And, yes. uh, I'll just be curious if we see more of that later, but a lot of the stuff that Tarakov wrestles with in terms of his approach to solving the problem that was about to become a much bigger problem involved military action based on preemption. And that is a thing. Remember your question there. Will we see it mo more of that again? I'll, I'll I'll remind you of that at some point. Excellent. So that that was neat to see running through there. It, I almost didn't list it as a theme because it wasn't emphasized, but because I thought this might be a thing that shows up again, I I threw it down. Slave trading and Mesa, of course, and Manpower Inc. Present for duty. That's woven all through this, and it reveals it's revealed through the wrangling behind why there are entities trying to prevent Manticore from annexing this cluster, the Talbot cluster. And um, yeah, so it, it's it's a really cool. This is not cool, right? But it's a really cool glimpse into seeing a motive that doesn't align with either of the warring parties. It aligns against both. And we see a player in the form of Mesa that has an apparent interest in making sure that these two fight. They don't. They don't want anyone to have an advantage. I would think they want these. Well, in this, Jim, I think you made the statement right. Manticore can't really pay attention to this if they're in a slugfest with Haven. Right. So, and and they are in a slugfest with Haven. So these these folks are saying let's take advantage of that and make sure that that manticore doesn't get stronger and that our interests are protected the big question is why yes yes and and i think we can make some assumptions oh, i already said haven and manticore are against what they do to make money if i can't if i couldn't 
just eliminate both of those off the map. If I can keep them beating each other up in the backyard, I can run around kind of unchecked. But doesn't that almost? Um, but I don't know that that's. I think that's the surface, and we'll just have you know. Yeah, it 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 almost seems surface. It it com- almost comes off that way. Yeah. Well, and we're ta- as if there's not got that it's to little... be more layers underneath. The you know, the, was it you, JP, that uh, used the description of an onion? Uh, one. Of, it could have been me. I one thought of, it was one you of a couple books ago. Yeah. So we're we're talking about this. This is silly, right? But we're talking about a huge physical universe here not talking about the honor verse i'm talking about the stage that all this is unfolding on we're and within that we're talking about one cluster that we heard nearly nothing about or nothing about frankly until we got to this point and now we're zoomed in and we're watching some really large things happen but this is about a cluster so in that sense i see a selfish and tactically or operationally focused mesa trying to keep the two entities at war that individually or could you imagine together really try to put a stop to the slave trade. But we're talking about a cluster. So I absolutely would not be surprised if this is just a just a taste. Here's your hors d'oeuvre of the ugliness of Mesa. And uh, but but that's what we got here is they are they, to me, they appear to be selfish, selfishly trying to preserve the slave trade, which is how I started with this theme. Is once again we're we're back to that that horrible state of affairs where Mesa and Manpower are are um, profiting off of a ugly, a very ugly thing, and and if they get a say in it, they're not going to be stopped. Uh-huh. They're going to do their thing. Jim, I know you had one you threw in here. Did you want to talk about that, or do you want me to cover it? Well, sure, I, I can I can do it. Uh-huh. Um, oftentimes, stories are based on revenge or good versus evil or things like that. Well, this story has another dimension: uh, redemption and transformation. Both, yeah. Uh, as examples, Helen changes her attitude towards Paulo when she learns the facts about him. Okay, that is really, really nice. I mean, it 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 um it says you know, hey, you can't judge a person by their appearance. You need to know what go, what's underneath the appearance that makes them the way they are. So, yeah. uh, Westman drops his operations when he learns who is providing him with weapons and their motives. Okay, yeah. so Westman is honest in what he's trying to do. He is genuine. He is a good person who believes he's doing the right thing. And when he finds out that he is doing the right thing with the wrong motivations behind him and the support that he's getting, he drops it and walks away. Yeah. He just, and he's willing to take, he's willing to take the price yeah, of his just, actions too. Just, just that he doesn't quick. get off. He he the, he's granted an amnesty. He he basically turns himself in. Yeah, Tarakov proves himself a great commander after being doubted by nearly everyone. I yeah. mean, nobody thought this guy could get the job done, and he went well above and beyond uh-huh. in in doing that. So uh, that's what I had. And uh, Raul, it looks like you got one listed too. Yeah, I, I did have one comment, and JP really did address a lot of a lot a lot of what I was going to say. 
Um, and it probably is appropriate to point this out. There's a lot of basic political and economic theory being taught in this book. Yeah. Uh, particularly discussions of actual capitalism versus I- any form of centralized control of wealth. Yeah. It, and almost it a could be, contrast if, if this was manner. the 1700s, that could have been a pamphlet. Yep. You know, somebody could have lifted that part of this book out and made it a, you know, a, a primer on, on economics. Yeah. yeah. Uh, primer on libertarian ideals, the dangers of oligarchical uh, tyrannies. Uh, it, it's, it, it just drips of it. Yeah. And Weber has taken criticism. The philosophy of wealth, all of that. Mm-hmm. And Weber's taken some criticism for preaching, uh, actually, the accusation of uh, shoving conservatism down the people's throats. And that's not what he does at I don't all. Know that that's fair. No, it's not. And I'll, I'm going to address that in my takeaway. But I wanted to add that into the theme because this kind of comparison and this kind of teaching is a part of the theme, and he's basing it on history. I mean, c- centuries of history. Not not recent political yeah. convers you know conditions or, or situations, which is something a lot of people. Yeah, this for, isn't this isn't American politics in science nope. fiction form. It's global and it's historic. Yes, exactly, exactly, and that is an important theme, especially in the second half of this series. So those those pe- our friends out there listening, I have no doubt there were eyes glazed over at the economic stuff that was in here. That's totally okay, but but he 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 David went he took the time to explain how a significant piece of how the machine you know not broadly right the machine works and economics is a huge part of it. We've talked about it before with with specifics, but here we got a really good laydown um, and that, but it tracks back too to the lots of dime. And like the you e said, Raul, and dime a is economic, the military. and the P is actually part of the D. Diplomacy yeah. slash political yep. is how I've seen it uh, presented before. Right. So, uh, cool stuff. Yep. And that brings us into the uh, plot points, I think. And, Jim, I am going to let you go first here. All right. Fair enough. The part I enjoyed most in uh, this book was a storyline including Agnes Norbrand and Stephen Westman. Their goals were the same at least on the surface, uh, but their methods made them two different people. I, I can certainly understand them not wanting to come under uh, Star Kingdom rule. I didn't like Agnes at all because of her indiscriminate killing of people. I felt like all she was doing was scaring the hell out of everyone. Uh, for me, all it made her was a mass murderer, and she needed to be stopped cold. On the other hand, Westman focused on the destruction of property. Uh, He went to great pains not to take lives. I love the way the author went about educating the reader on the difference between terrorists and guerrilla warriors. I like Westman because of his down-home cowboyish ways and how he was willing to meet with the opposition occasionally and really listen to what they had to say. I was especially happy with his redemption when he found out who was actually supporting his efforts and changing his mind. He is a thoughtful man who wants to do the right thing, even if it goes against what he originally thought was right. Yeah. He's a big enough man to say he was wrong. Yeah. And JP, I'm going to toss it over to you. 
Okay. Not a major plot point, but I didn't know where else to mention it. I, I hinted at it earlier, I think, but the recounting of the Battle of Carson early in the book, that was Edward Saganami's actions or his actions in that battle in particular. And his last words were a phenomenal stage setter for everything else that followed and a huge tearjerker. Uh, ditto for the welcoming home, as I mentioned, of the forces at the end of the novel, an appropriate scene for uh, generating a bunch of uh, sweaty eyeballs or allergies or whatever you want to call them. So I just, for what it's worth, my own, my personal well-written and well done to, uh, to Mr. Weber. That was awesome writing. Uh, favorite plot point in this story relative to the Talbot cluster anyway, and specifically the system called Montana. We get to watch Manicor working with Talbot, but not in isolation, following a plebiscite where a significant majority of the cluster voted to request annexation. The system is poor for a number of reasons, which come out in the novel. We just had a discussion about that without being specific. Related to the existing forms of government associated economic systems that were in place. While there are distinct differences between the current forms of government in the cluster and that of the Star Kingdom, most people appear not to realize this can and in fact does create real friction. People seem to know without a full understanding of why that this change will bring improved economic health or put differently to bring wealth in some power positions inside the cluster, but also outside of it. Also, understand that the recently discovered Lynx Terminus, which is what they, I couldn't remember the name earlier, they named this Terminus tied back to the Manicor wormhole, is a source of new wealth. And so we get that competing maneuvering that begins at the local level. It's all about preserving personal power and wealth rather than the wealth of the nations or the citizens within the cluster. And we watch this unfold. External players other than Manticore see the opportunity to deny Manticore control of the Terminus and gain wealth for themselves. And, and I'll even throw in and limit wealth, additional or new wealth for Manticore. On the surface, everyone seems to make altruistic type arguments, but we all know the motives are almost always selfish and at the expense of the average citizen within the cluster. The primary players are the Solarian League's Office of Frontier Security, a haven to some extent because they're at war with Manticore and specifically Mesa and their associated slave trade. So having Man Manticore this close would definitely increase the threat to their genetic slave trading biz. Uh, perhaps among other things, and seeing how all of these elements in the cluster and related to the cluster, but Montana in particular, perceive and respond was the was just super cool. And that goes back to our friend Westerman and, and uh, how we watch him change that redemption story on his part. So that was my, that was a lot of the story, but that economic, it really goes back to the, the political and economic lesson that we get through, mm -hmm. uh, a science fiction story. And yeah. We, we talked about that, but I drive that home as a favorite plot point. Raul, how about you, good sir? Well, I'm in a lot of ways going to just continue on with uh, where you came from on this, because frankly, picking up favorite plot points is really, really hard for this book. Yeah. So it's going to come down more to the themes that were reflected in the plots. 
and in particular, the compare and contrast between Cornati and Montana, the difference between terrorism and revolutionary action. I, and I know it's something we probably talked to the ground into the ground by this point, but it was so very well done. And, you know, another thought on the idea of, of Westman getting off too easy. You know, keep in mind what the reason he got off, it was a matter of political expediency. Yeah. And that certainly has its historical pre- precedence as well. Another thing that I liked, and this again goes along with some of what you were talking about, JP, is sort of an extension. David came down really hard on the idea of it's just politics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in particular, Cornati, but also New Tuscany and the bluff uh, they were running, where it's looking at people. You know, humans as nothing more than pawns in their political maneuvering. On the other hand, and this is still with that compare and contrast, he really explores how an otherwise noble idea can be utterly manipulated and twisted by the unscrupulous. And, and I, I, I really thought it, he, he dealt with all of that really elegantly and in a really well-written manner. And last but not least, the way this book is setting up uh, everything that's coming. And I don't just mean in uh, at all costs. I mean, going forward beyond beyond uh, into the rest of the series. And I'm not going to discuss it more than that. But I think anyone who's read reason, these books, huh? I think for that reason that like we all said, this could have been two, two books or there's two novels. Yeah, it had to be one book because but of that. It had to be one book because of what you just said. Yes. I mean, it, it wouldn't have worked. They would have been two good stories otherwise, but the teaching moment that this book has would have been lost completely. It's not just politics. All this stuff touches. All of this touches. Yes. And Weber just showed us that. So it's it's cool. Yes. And Jim, in turning it over to favorite quotes, can I have permission to go first for once on this one? Sure. Go right ahead. I have only one quote, and it is... Fairly short. They looked back at her and she inhaled deeply. Ladies and gentlemen, she said, her soprano voice ringing out clear and strong. That tradition lives. Every time I've reread this book, I have to stop there and walk away because it hits me that hard. But that quote sums up the whole damn book, in my opinion. Cool. All right, JP, did you want to go next? If you want me to, I will do it. Go right ahead. Okay, Honor Harrington's words to the graduating cadets at Saginaw Island as she talks about the burden <laughs> of officership and specifically of command. And it sounds like Ral's ready for this one. No, no, no. I when I, <laughs> I, I think I've got a note in here somewhere that am I uh I was wondering if JP was gonna bring this one up. And I did. So here it is. <laughs> here's what here's what uh, Honor tells her students. Your instructors have done their best here at the island to prepare you for that burden, that reality. Yet the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, that no one can truly prepare you for it. We can teach you, train you, share our institutional experiences with you, but no one can be with you in the furnace. The chain of command, your superiors, the men and women under your orders— All of them will be there, and yet, in that moment, when you truly confront duty and morality, you will be alone. 
And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a moment no training and no teacher can truly prepare you to face. In that moment, you will have only four things to support you. Your training, which we have made as complete, as demanding, and as rigorous as we possibly could. Your courage, which can come only from within. Your loyalty to the men and women with whom you serve and the tradition of Saginami. Some of you, most of you, will rise to the challenge of that moment. Some will try with all that is within you and discover that all the training and courage in the universe do not make you immortal. And some, hopefully only a very few, will break. That was JP with his very rich baritone voice rather than his soprano voice. Now you have to go back and read it all again. Uh, yeah, soprano. not going to happen. <laughs> I, would, it, I would mock the awesomeness of the book. Not on purpose. Okay, different part of the book. Uh, Baroness Medusa, who, um, if you don't remember, she is Lady Dame Estelle Matsuko. Mm-hmm. And in here, she is Queen Elizabeth's provincial or provisional governor, is pondering the state of politics and ac- economics in the cluster. Sorry, I can't get off the uh, the D and the E in, in here. And she's specifically addressing Spindle, one of the localities within the cluster. What you hear should sound familiar. These are the same circumstances that described how Haven fell apart, and ultimately became the Republic of Haven. Remember that the I'm talking about economics and to a great extent here, because we learned about this many novels back, about what ha- how Haven began and then what happened. All these systems are crushingly poor, she thought. Devastated economies in the midst of everything they need to be prosperous, except for that first boost up. All except Rembrandt and its trading partners, perhaps, But even the trade union's members are poverty-stricken compared to Manticore, Sphinx, or Griffin. She'd known that intellectually before she ever arrived here, but knowing and understanding were very different. And one thing that bothered her deeply was the vast gulf between the haves and the have-nots in Talbot. Even the wealthiest Talbotter was scarcely even well-off compared to someone like Klaus Taupman or Duchess Harrington. But on many of these worlds, there was no middle class. Or rather, what middle class they had was only a thin layer, without the number of strengths to fuel the growth of a self-sustaining economy. And that was less because of the huge size of the lower class than because of the vast over-concentration of wealth and and property in the hands of a tiny, closed, wealthy class. In terms of real buying power and the ability to command the necessities of life, the gap between someone like Samia Lababibi and someone from Thimble's slums was literally astronomical. And although the Lababibi family fortune might have constituted little more than pocket change for Klaus Hauptmann, it, along with those of a handful of other families, represented a tremendous portion of the total available wealth of the spindle system and starved the economy as a whole of desperately needed investment capital. And as for economic power, so for politics. Yep. And that's just a snippet of the education that Weber lays down in a cool fictional you, You're getting into some of the reasons why I was, I've been predicting you're really going to love some of these later books, JP. Well, it's, you, were, you were on target. And then this uh, short quote, 
final quote, because I, I think it's a companion to the one I just read. This is Van Dort talking uh, with a Cornadian officials with not with the Cornad with but with Cornadian officials. Take notice that what he warns them about is what actually happened in Haven when a successful coup transformed it into the People's Republic. And that's why I said this quote and the one I just read kind of go together in my mind. On the one hand, obviously, the military threat must be contained and neutralized. That's usually fairly straightforward, if not necessarily simple. Helen watched all four of the Cornadians sit up straighter, their eyes brighter, and Van Dort smiled. But then, he, but then his smile faded just a bit. But in addition to neutralizing the military threat, remedial action must be taken to repair the abuses which helped create the threat in the first place. You can't eliminate resistance by simply shooting resistors, not unless you're prepared to embrace a policy of outright terror yourselves. And that he just described Haven. Yep. Now it's on a, on a smaller scale with an opportunity to not let something horrible like that happen. So those are the quotes I picked. Excellent. Yeah. I chose one. Uh, This is an exchange between Abigail Hearns and her personal armsman, Mateo Gutierrez, after encountering a bully on Hephaestus Station. (laughs) I saw that, Mateo, Lieutenant Abigail Hearns said, quietly, gallantly attempting to put a repressive edge into her voice. Saw what, my lady? Mateo Gutierrez inquired innocently. You deliberately change course to plow that person under, she said severely. How can you possibly suggest such a thing, my lady? Gutierrez shook his head sadly, a man clearly accustomed to being misunderstood and maligned. Possibly because I know you, Abigail replied tartly. He only shook his head again, adding a sigh for good measure, and she managed not to laugh out loud. It wasn't the first time she noticed that Gutierrez seemed to take special offense when he encountered someone who used physical size or strength to intimidate others. Mateo Gutierrez didn't care for bullies. Abigail had been a bit surprised by how little astonishment she felt on the day she realized that for all his toughness and amazing lethality, he was one of the gentlest people she knew. There was nothing soft or wishy-washy about Gutierrez, but although he went to considerable lengths to hide it, he was the sort of man who routinely adopted homeless kittens or lost puppies and Steadholder's daughters. (laughs) Yeah. What the heck happened to Gutierrez through the rest of the book? Oh, I know, I know. There's only so much story you can jam into 800 pages. Yep, or 755 pages. He didn't get left behind, did he? I mean, that's against the rules. But like JP said, the book was already packed enough. I know. So this is a question you got to get written in for David Weber. I mean, uh, this may be a plot hole, one of the few. A, a plot hole. What happened to Gutierrez after he uh, quashed the bully? <laughs> <laughs> because we care about the kitties and the puppies. Yes, of course. And, and the, the tree cats. Stead holder's daughter and the tree cats. Yeah. 
Though the trick so, guys do a pretty JP, good job taking care uh, of themselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, JP, closing thoughts and uh, takeaways is your caption. Oh, all right. I'm with Raul. This book is one of my favorites so far. Um, it is full of meat rather than milk in the context of important lessons to be learned about dime and how, how it actually works in the real world. My takeaway, if you're not a person who can see past the immediate and local or tactical issues in your life, be sure to keep someone close to you who can and, and does. We see that happening in this story. Then be sure to consider their perspective and their advice. It's important in life and it's certainly important in the military and in politics, international relations, uh, to see and understand the perspectives of your allies, certainly um, your opponents and your enemies. Genuinely try to see what they're doing and why, what their motives are. Personal preferences and bias can biases can blind you to the larger picture. And in a tiny, tiny snapshot of that last statement is, Jim, what you described with, with um, mm-hmm. Helen and Paolo. Yep. And we're going to see more of this uh, so, thought explored. So who's next? I'll just go next. Do it. All right. So uh, this was a very busy book with tons of really good characters. Uh, there are so many lessons to be learned from this story that we could have probably taken each and outlined them separately in separate podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took me a while to get through this one, but not because it was hard to read. It was because of uh, the sheer density of the material. I admired villains and heroes alike in this because David made them real people with both strengths and weaknesses, uh, and they came across as being very human. Uh, I really enjoy a book with well-developed characters, and this one is loaded with them. My takeaway, always listen closely to those you disagree with. You never know when you might learn something. And Raul, passing it over to you. Bring us home, Raul. The first big closing thought, I mentioned some of the criticisms that he's taking and taken for this, is remember, this is not allegory. It is not proselytizing. It is story developed out of real political, economic, and philosophical principles that he extrapolates based on historical context. Um, and go, going back to the great Scottish writers and forward, uh, po- probably even beyond before that, it, as JP said, you, you could, it could have been a pamphlet 200 years ago or a treatise. Yeah. Well, and, and I'll tell you what, the way I, I, I would answer this Raul, your, um, your, your, what you just said, is anybody who is reading with an open mind would realize what you just said. I hope so. If you're looking to get inside the head of the author rather than the characters, then you're going to miss the target and you're going to lose all the richness that is in yep. this book. Let the story speak. Yeah. Yeah. So please continue. All right. Uh, my biggest takeaway is one important question that is probably on people's minds at this point is what 
is the goal of manpower slash Mesa. There has yep. to be something more to this than just simply protecting their slave trade. Says yeah. the guy who's already read the whole darn bunch of books. <laughs> we talked about it, that. Yeah, and it's, it's even been mentioned already in the past that it's not exactly the most economically effective uh, option in a mo as modern of a age as they are in. So it, it, there's, we, and we've been getting little hints that you know there's got to be there should be more to this. There's got to be more to this than, yeah. and especially if you have read the anthologies which were written. You know, quite a few years before this, uh, four or five years in some cases, we've been getting the hints about uh, we, we've been getting the hints about Mesa being dropped for some time now. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I say yes, the short stories really are important. And I don't know, Jim, uh, I do have some callouts, listener callouts. I really want to make. Uh, do you All want me right. to do that now, or do you want me to go straight into the ratings first and uh, then do it with the closing materials? Yeah, let's move that down to the closing stuff. All right. Well, in that case, we are going to get into the ratings. I don't think this is going to be a very difficult one. <laughs> Jim, you go first. I might even be able to do the math in my head. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, except well, Jim didn't. Yeah, my problem is I only... I can only count four. So. Addition, not multiplication, sir. Yeah, that, that, what, it, whatever that is. Okay, <laughs> so. Jim's counting on his tree cat hands, not his human hands. So there you go. Uh, so I am going to call this five nasty kitties. Uh, yeah, it was a, a great book. How about you, JP? I second the motion. Five nasty kitties. Yeah, th this one's easy. Five nasty kitties, and that's the perfect, uh, that's the perfect qualifier for it. Yep. So overall, our rating is a five uh, out of five. Uh, yeah. Goodreads. Goodreads reports 4.17 with 6,393 ratings. And Amazon a 4.6 with 1,112 ratings. And uh, we're going to... That's pretty impressive. It's hard to break a four on Goodreads especially. Well, yeah, I, what distresses me is we were talking about tens of thousands with, uh, with the regular series books. And then we're, then we talk about 6,000. I think yeah. there's a, there's people out there that are just missing an awful lot of really good stuff. Yes. They, they <laughs> think this is a spinoff series and that's one of the reasons why I keep emphasizing that. No, this is not a spinoff. Yeah. It's a branch. It belong. It's attached directly to the main story. Yeah, it is the main story. It is. Yep. I mean, it just it it flows that way. So, all right, now let's do those shout outs. Um, and that actually goes what we what you were just saying there, uh, Jim. I I've had several people ask me for uh, our reading list, and I've not hesitated to make it available to them. Okay. Yeah. Um, Talking about the order that we're doing yes. the books in? Yes. So we we probably need to see if there's a way of posting that as a file on uh, if the podcast host supports things like that. Yeah. 
or or I could put it up on uh, on on our Facebook page. On Facebook and, page, yeah, we definitely want to do that too. And pin it. So. Yep. Um, anyway, some special thank yous to Baz and Conrad, of course. Uh, I, I know Jim and JP since, you know, our conversations between the conversation between those two has been very spoiler filled. So I really can't make a lot of direct comments to the things that they're saying. Plus a new message from Carl, who we haven't heard from in a while. It is good to hear from him again. He actually made a, he's actually going to be looking up our our Babylon five episodes, by the way. So yay. He did bring out a quote that I am going to go ahead and read. He was, I was teasing about humans, tree cat names, including Elizabeth's. It wasn't mentioned in the podcast, but the quote there, and it's obvious who we've got to be talking to, uh, you know, honor's name is dances on clouds, but, uh, the quote is not only do dances on clouds and laughs brightly share a deeper, clearer bond than any other of the people has ever forged with a human but she has become a great elder among humans. Not as great as Soul of Steel, perhaps, for she does not head our humans' high clan, but a great elder upon her other world nonetheless. And also a special call out, a hello to Marcus, who's listening from Germany. So we've got folks all over the world here uh, listening. And he did point out that, you know, like you, JP, not everyone is heavily invested or active in social media by choice. So that's one of the reasons he's one of the ones asking about, uh, about uh, the reading list. So it's like, I'm going to try and see if we can get that up on our website. And he also added some, uh, had some questions for our next David Weber interview. I've gone ahead and added those to our working list. Outstanding. So yes, David, that's a hint. It really is a hint. (laughs) It might be about time. Okay, I'm I'm going to I'm going to confess something here. When I go to the gym to do my 180 minutes a week workout, I take my phone and my AirPods or AirBuds or earbuds or whatever they're called, and I and I listen to podcasts. And I just the last two days have listened to uh, our our interview. And he said, just give him two weeks notice. Yeah. You know, yeah. just give give him a couple of weeks and he can most certainly put something together. So uh, yep. I'd also like to add to our shout outs, one for Mr. Hank Davis, the podcasting machine behind hosting Always. of this podcast, The Honorverse Today, on the TPE network of fun and informative podcasts. We salute you, sir. Very much. And Yes, and coming up next, we will be looking at At All Costs by David Weber from the Honor Harrington main sequence. And uh, I'm looking forward myself to focusing on Honor once again. Yeah, and and uh, JP, if you thought you had a little bit of diamond here, just wait till the next book. Oh, I'm drooling. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right, so I guess that's about it for tonight. Oh, I think we've talked this one to death. Okay. You know, and it feels like we hardly touched on half of what happened in the story. But we're tracking toward two hours. Dear heavens. You know what that means, Raul? No, what does it mean, J.P.? Folks need to, if you haven't read this book, 
or it's been a long time, go read it. Yes. There's just no way f- that we can cover the no. stuff worth mentioning. So we picked out we picked out some stuff and we covered that. Yeah. If you are a Honor Harrington fan, you really, really owe it to yourself to read this book. All of them. All of them, yes. yes. Read <laughs> this book starting with On Basilisk the, my, yeah. Station. My point is don't <laughs> ignore the two quote unquote side series. Yeah. They are yeah. not side series and they are not spin-offs. And mm. when you get to when you see at all costs, if there's things you don't understand or are wondering where did this come from or how did this it's from the, the these other pieces of material. Book, they are as much like story and as right much here. canon as everything else. Yeah. Yep. Well there's a definite timeline and you know, you said you said, Raul, we were gonna read these in publication order and it's really, really obvious why Uh to me i mean because it is one continuing story it doesn't matter what thread it comes from it is a continuing story yeah thanks for trusting me on that one oh hey it's not a problem okay so that is it for today and uh i'm just gonna say good night and good luck and say good night jp good night jp night everybody for listening to Honorverse today. We welcome your feedback. Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library found at their site. Theme music is Honor and Sword by Zakar Valaha. Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs. <laughs>